0: All right, ladies and gentlemen, welcome to Kabbalah and Coffee. It's great to see everybody. As always, the series of Kabbalah and Coffee is sponsored by Dr. Maxi, in honor and in memory of her dear mother. Thank you, Dr. Maxi, for the sponsorship. May the learning be as an eternal blessing for your mom. So I want to talk today about the Garden of Eden and what paradise looks like. What does paradise look like? So, they tell a story about a couple, a husband and a wife, and uh, the wife, at a certain point in their marriage and their lives, she decides to get on a very uh, strict health kick. Is that the right phrase? A health kick? Health, yeah, a kick, yeah, kick of health. And so, it's all about like train, modifying the diet and no sugar and no carbs and no this and no that and only. Whole thing, right? And this exercise and that exercise and yoga and pilates and the, all, all of that stuff. Well, she also schleps her husband along in this, also. And uh, there he is going along, maybe not so enthusiastically, but he's along for the ride. <coughs> and so it goes. They eat healthy, they live healthy, they exercise healthy, and uh, they're in their older years. And tragedy happens, they're driving along, they're hit by a car and they lose their lives and they go up to heaven. Well, they go up to heaven and the angels are looking at the case, That the case is in front of them and the angels say, well, you guys lived a great life. Wonderful people, good people, generous people, honest people, honorable people, people like you, people. Great. It's wonderful, straight to paradise. They go to Gan and they go to paradise, and it's beautiful, and it's amazing, and it's tranquil, and it's peaceful, and it's spiritual. And there's music playing on the soft violins. Or there are, I don't know what a soft violin is as opposed to a hard violin, whatever. There's soft music, there you go, playing on a violin, and there's clouds, and angels with fluffy wings, and there's all you can eat, buffet. it's like the whole thing, right? A smorg, and the husband looks at the wife, and he says to her, all those years of eating healthy, All those years of exercise, all those years of staying fit. We could have been here so many years earlier. Anyway, that's, uh, so Garden of Eden, Garden of Eden. What was life like before the sin? This is going to be the major focus of today's conversation. What was life like for Adam and Eve before the sin? And what was life, well, what is life like for us after the sin? I don't know that we need a class on what life is like after the sin. We know that's our lives in which we're conflicted between right and wrong, good and evil. Yet let's try to compare and contrast these two realities: the reality pre sin, post sin. Now, a few things are in, just to line things up. There's a lot to talk about, so I want to kind of organize uh, the, the concepts and line things up. So, number one, the forbidden fruit. Forbidden fruit is known in Hebrew as the Aitz Hadat. Tov Vara, the tree of knowledge of good and evil. That is the formal name of the tree. It's not called the forbidden fruit. It's not called the evil. I don't know if anybody calls it that. It's not called the evil fruit. It's not called something bad. It's literally called the tree of knowledge of good and evil. In other words, it is primarily about a sense of, Matt, it's Alex. Can you direct him here? Thanks. Um, it's, and the door is open, but just teaming, I don't know where to go. So um, it's, pr- it's primarily, not primarily, it is called, a, an had Hadat, a tree of knowledge. Again, it's very important to know, it's not called the forbidden tree. It's called the tree of knowledge. And yet, Adam and Eve were told, don't eat from that tree. Which prompts many, many questions. Including the following few questions. Number one, Why would God, if the tree is truly a tree of knowledge... Why would God seek to hide that from mankind? Why would God seek to um, keep Adam and Eve away from that tree? That doesn't seem nice. If it's truly a tree of knowledge, and it's a tree that, whatever that means, a tree of knowledge. But if that's the case, then why wouldn't God want the best for Adam and Eve, which would be to to have that knowledge? That's question number one. Question number two is how does a tree impart knowledge anyway? What it, tree of knowledge. What, what is this? Some sort of supernatural tree? Like what kind of what kind of weird tree is that? What 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 type of tree imparts knowledge? Like, was it a miracle? Was it a miracle tree? And then if it was a miracle tree, then it impart knowledge. So then we revert back to the first question, which is so why why were they forbidden from eating from it? Why would God withhold that blessing from Adam and Eve if he really loves mankind? If he really loved Adam and Eve, then why Say, here's knowledge, but you can't have it. It seems kind of cruel. It seems kind of not nice. The third question is, what does it mean that the tree of knowledge was the tree of knowledge of good and evil? What's, that? what's, the, what's the twist on that, good and evil? Tree of knowledge, not just general knowledge, but of good and evil. The fourth question is, it seems like from the sin, they did gain knowledge and awareness. The Torah is very, very precise in its language. The Torah says that before the sin, Adam and Eve were not wearing clothes. They were not ashamed. They were not embarrassed. They were not wearing clothes. They were not embarrassed. The Torah actually has a verse that says that. Even though no one's asking what the wardrobe looked like, no one asked that. How is it relevant to the conversation? Adam and Eve, do we know what the, you know, how, you know, the animals, do we know what the trees look like? Why are you telling us about, the, the, about Adam and Eve, about their, their clothing? That seems to be like not the first question that we're wondering. What about shoes? Their footwear? I mean, we're not talking about accessories. I, yet the Torah tells us, which means that it's Torah, of course, means hora, uh, which means lesson, like mora, mora, to teach. To instruct, Torah is a guidebook. It's not a history book. It's a it's a book for living. It's an instruction manual for life. Hey, Alex, welcome. It's an instruction manual for life. If you want, oh, you got okay. Um, So everything in Torah is for the sake of instruction. So getting back to the question, uh, sure. So we spoke about I
1: guess today, I think Rabbi Chusud in his class about. You know, and you've mentioned it many times that the evil inclination is within us. God puts it there. And we've spoken yeah. here many times that, you know, that story about the uh, seduct the, the princess and seducing. Right. Okay.
0: Yeah. And I always feel this way. And
1: so you know, the fifth question is, why, from the get-go, entrapment set up by
0: Asha? Good. Good question. Hey, Sandrine. Um, good. All right. So hold, let me wrap up the fourth question. We'll get to the fifth question. So fourth question is... The fourth question is... Why is it that before... Uh, sorry. It seems like they did gain knowledge because before the Torah says, before the sin, they were not wearing clothes and they... Hold on one second. Where are you? Yeah. So before the sin, before the sin, they were not wearing clothes. They were not embarrassed. After the sin, the Torah tells us that they realized that they were not wearing clothes, and Adam hides. Adam hides, which means there was a sense of shame, a sense of embarrassment. So, the, so it seems like there was an awareness that was granted through eating the tree. So again, two questions. Number one. How did they gain an awareness through eating fruit? What does that even mean? It seems like a weird. They ate from a tree and they gained awareness. What kind of what kind of fruit opens up awareness? That doesn't even make sense. Number one and number two is why specifically vis a vis this concept that they that they weren't aware that they were enclosed and now they are aware that they were enclosed. So what does that do about the clothes? Um, and then Don is asking a question, which is why. Were, why, why was there temptation granted to human beings uh, to begin with? Why? What, where's the concept of temptation? Why does it come in? Why not just create a paradise with no forbidden fruit, with no temptation, with no evil inclination, with no serpent, with no challenge, uh, paradise, sitting on the beach, and everything is good? What could be wrong with it's that?
1: Temptation is right, because tempting to do bad things and you're not supposed to do bad. So that's why I it entrapment.
0: Right. Seems like entrapment. I don't
1: think it was not bad things. It was at that point they really weren't people. They were like you know, they're like plants, you know, because
0: they they had no ambition. They had nothing to shoot, you know, struggle for. And, and I think that that was part of the evolution of man. So, Mani is saying that before the sin, they were just like robots, plants. They just didn't have their own volition. They didn't have their own yeah, they, they, their own drive, their own. But after the sin. They, 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 so let's, let's, let's get into this a little bit. And so the, the key here is understanding, understanding what is the meaning of the tree of knowledge of good and evil. Uh, Maimonides asks a question, which um, we, I, I mentioned last week, but I want to dive much deeper into it. Maimonides asked the following question. Sorry, Maimonides says that somebody asked him the following question. A wise man asked, once asked me the following question. It doesn't make sense to reward someone for a sin. It doesn't make sense. You wouldn't reward a criminal. It doesn't make sense, right? Somebody commits a crime and you give them a reward? No, they should have a punishment, not a reward. So what happens through Adam and Eve sinning? It seems like they actually were rewarded. They gained knowledge. They, the very thing that, that God was trying to, to keep from them, it seems like they got. They got awareness. They got knowledge. So it seems like they're being rewarded for their, uh, for their for for their iniquity. H- how does that make sense? God's rewarding people for sin now. Since when is that in the system in the fabric of, of divine law and order, divine uh, uh, um, uh, justice. So Maimonides explains the following, and this is the key to everything. Maimonides writes this in his books of philosophy, Jewish philosophy, and this is expounded upon in the books of Jewish, Mysticism, Kabbalah, and so we, here we have, not always does it line up, but here we have a lining up of philosophy and Kabbalah in a beautiful way. And let me share with you first the, the, philosoph- the philosophical idea. The philosophical idea is the following. Before the sin, life was divided. You know, you could split something different ways. You can, you can explain something in a binary way, multiple ways. You can, you can explain something along different parameters. So here is how life or the world or the universe was explained, was understood by Adam and Eve before the sin. Things were either right or they were wrong. I'll say that again. Things were either right or they were wrong. What made something right? According to God's will. This was aligned aligned with God's will. God's will. What makes something wrong? Not aligned with God's will. Very simple definition. Very clear. Black and white. Either it is aligned with God's will or it's not aligned with God's will. Either it's right or it's wrong. There's a clarity. It's right, it's wrong, that's it. Well, how are my feelings about it? Irrelevant. It is either objectively right or it's objectively wrong. What happens with the sin? Just look at the tree. What's the, what's the name of the tree? The tree of knowledge. Knowledge means awareness, perception of good, of good and evil or... Good and bad. Let's just call it good and bad. What's the difference between right and wrong and good and bad? One might say it's the same thing. Right is good and wrong is bad. But you and I know in our experience that's not true. Something could be wrong and feel very good. Something could be right and feel very bad. You with me on this? I'll say this again. Before the sin... There was a very, life was divided along this continuum. Right and wrong. In other words, aligned with God's will, not aligned with God's will. What God wants, what God doesn't want. After the sin, we have a new definition. Or we have a new way of of dividing things, of categorizing things. Now it's no longer about right and wrong solely. Now it's about good and bad. How does it feel to me? Do I like it? Do I not like it? I can like, that's, that's, what, that's the, the, the definition of tovra etadat tovra, the tree of knowledge of good and bad, means not right and wrong. It's a subjective sense of what feels good, but doesn't feel good. And now we divide life in different ways. A person can say, and let's just contem- uh, contemporize this. A person might say, this mitzvah is what God wants, but I don't like it. So it's right, i.e., aligned with God's will, but it's bad for me because it's taking my time, taking my resources, I'm not interested in it, it doesn't resonate, I'm not I don't care about it. It's bad. For me, it's bad. Personally. For
1: your personal definition.
0: Personal definition. Right, right, right. Exactly. In other words, these are not no longer objective definitions vis-a-vis God's perspective. These are now Uh, subjective definitions, right? So a person could say, this might be right, but I don't like it. So it's right, but it's bad for me. I don't like it. And conversely, this might be wrong. In other words, this might be something that God would now want me to do, but it feels good. So, So I like it. I like doing it. We've all been through that, through that shift, pre-tree, post-tree, not peach-tree, that's something else. Pre-tree, post-tree in our lives. We grew up, what, at the, it doesn't matter what your experience in life has been, we've all had this moment where something, there was a black and white definition that was given to us, that we were taught, that we learned, whatever it was, there was some sort of, in whatever area, I'm leaving this as open-ended as possible, there was something that you were taught or that you believed to be right and wrong, and then, at a later point in your life, you had that moment of moral, internal, what's a good word for lack of clarity? Ambivalence, where you realize that the thing that's right may not feel good, and the thing that's wrong does feel good. So now what? Now it's complicated. Until you've tasted from the forbidden fruit, there's a naivete that, that allows that initial definition to work. Well, if it's wrong, it's wrong. If it's right, it's right. That's it. The line has been drawn. I didn't draw the line. The line has been drawn. Right? You want to call it a red line, whatever you want to call it. That line, I will not cross over that line. Why? Because I, I, I was taught that this is wrong. Right? Until you try it. And you're like, wait a second. If it's wrong, why does it feel so right? <laughs> why does it feel so good? If it's wrong, why does it feel so good? Why do I like it if it's wrong? And now that I know that I like it, what do I do with the fact that it's wrong? Are you with me on this? Yes? Present company excluded, of course, we're perfect. Blah blah blah, 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 Right? But you're with me on this? It could be, by the way, it could be as innocent as 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 a kid... Telling a fib to get out of something, you know, whatever it could be, as, as innocent or as not innocent as you choose to imagine in your head. But everyone has, I think, everyone has had this experience where there was what we knew to be right and wrong, and then at some point, whether we chose to do it or we were pushed into it or we kind of fell into it by accident, we did, we we tasted what was wrong, and it was like, oh, well, wait a second, that actually feels good. That actually worked out for me. I was able to. I, I was able to get ahead. By going that path, and the other path actually f- did not feel good. So now the question is, which, which definition do I, do I hold on to in life? Do I, do I go by the right and wrong definition, or by the, by the objective right and wrong definition, or by the subjective good and bad definition? You with me on this? And now every time we're confronted with a choice, we, we're, we're faced with these two definitions in life. Two definitions in life. Do I go by what's right versus wrong? Or do I go by what feels good versus what doesn't feel good? Do I go by an objective standard of truth or by a subjective standard of how it makes me feel? This is the great challenge of life. It's almost like you're organizing your library at home. You have a home library. You have a thousand books, and they need to be organized. Right? So how are you going to organize them? Are you Are going to organize them by topic? By author, by color. color palette. Yeah, oh, that's the big thing now. Sure, I mean, if you look at Instagram, phew. Oh, everyone's organizing by color scheme. Get all my yellow books up there, all my blue books up there, all my red books down there. It's gavalded. How do I organize my books? How do I organize my life? How do I, how do I categorize things? Do I look at life through the lens of right and wrong? Or do I look at life through the lens of what feels good, what doesn't feel good? By the way, what I'm suggesting is not anything that we don't know about. There is a, there has been a movement. I, I'm, not, I'm not weighing in good, bad, or ugly in this. I'm just saying there has, there's been a movement over the last number of decades. Live life in a way that makes you feel good. Do what makes you feel good. Live, right? Choose your path based on what what you feel is what you feel is good, what you want to do. I'm not weighing in and saying, that's bad. I'm not wagging any fingers. I'm not standing on any soapboxes. I'm just telling you that there are two ways, general ways of looking at things. Along the X, along, Y, you know, and... Well, I don't know. I'm not a big plotter of, of things, but if I was, I would say there's the X, Y line, there's this line, and then there's that line. And I don't know which one is which. It doesn't really matter. The point is there's two different ways to divide things. To organize things. Right and wrong, that's objective. Or good and bad, subjective. What happens to Adam and Eve? Let's go back to the Garden of Eden. Initially, they're naive. They're created as adults, but they have the naivete of a child. And a child, you tell a child, that's, that's wrong. Okay, it's wrong. <clears throat> Does the child know that if it's wrong, it still might feel good? How would the child know that? You with me on this? How would the child ever know about the taste of forbidden fruit? How would the child ever know that if they just you know, peek at their friend's test, they might get an answer right that they don't know? How would they know unless they've experienced it or seen someone else do it? You with me on this? So Adam and Eve are created in a, in a way of naivete. They're naive. And as they don't have the knowledge of good and bad, they have the knowledge of right and wrong. God told them, this is the score. This is what you're here for. This is your mission. This is right. This is wrong. This is on limits. This is off limits. Great. Great. These are the rules. Perfect. Until the serpent slithers by. Actually, the serpent then was, uh, was, upsta- was upstanding. How ironic. The, the serpent was um, upright. Not upstanding. That's something else. The snake was definitely not upstanding. The serpent was upright. And he walks over to Eve and says to Eve, Hey, how's it going? Come here often? Anyway, and then he says, "Uh, how about this tree? How about this fruit? Looks good. Looks good. Looks good. Not right or wrong. Looks good. And Eve says, yeah, but we can't have it. It's wrong. And the snake basically tells her, essentially, right and wrong. It's so like day four of creation. Seriously. (laughs) Come on. This is day six. Maybe it's so day five. Or maybe the morning of day six. Come on. (sighs) You're going to live your life based on right and wrong, some objective standard? Live life the way you feel. Look at this. It looks good, right? Eve saw that it was good for the eyes. It was good to the eyes. It looked good. She ate it. It looked good. She ate it. That was the first time the human being ever tasted, ever tasted how sweet the wrong thing might be. Of course, your question is, why does God make the wrong thing so sweet? Okay, that's because God grants free choice. If everything wrong was bitter, then what would be the point? Then this would be the realm of the angels. It's only because what's wrong tastes sweet sometimes, and what's right Taste bitter that we now have, we stand at the crossroads of challenge. And God knows that when He creates this complicated reality where there's not only right and wrong, but there's also good and bad, what I feel as good and bad, and that they may collide against that first interpret first the first metric. God knows that, and that's what creates the value of our choices, and that's what creates purpose for our existence. Because if all right was good and all wrong was bad, then we would obviously choose right and good. We would never choose wrong and bad. That wouldn't be why would anyone choose something that's number one wrong and number one feels terrible? Who would ever choose that? You know it's wrong and it feels terrible. You're gonna choose it. The whole choice comes in when the two definitions cross over. When what's right feels bad and what's wrong feels good. Now you have a question. Now, you, now you're at, and you're in the middle of that crossroads. You're in the middle, you're middle of that X. You're right in the middle of that X. So I know that if I go the honest route, I'll have X amount of money. But I know that if I go into a bank and pass a note, I was in a bank on Friday that got robbed. I was in the branch when it got robbed. I, right? A person might say, I know that if I play by the rules, I won't have the three grand. But if I pass the teller a note, I can walk out with $3,000, which would happen. So now that's wrong. Sorry, that's just in my space. I'm trying to keep consistent to my own imaginary space over here. I know that's wrong, but it's good because I just walked away with $3,000. If I play by the rules, I'm not going to have the money. And I'm standing right here. What do I do? What do I do? The banker told me you need to leave the bank now. It's after the robbery. You need to leave the bank now because it's about to be shut down. You wanna be stuck here. So it was Arab Shabbos. Did I say yesterday? Yesterday was Shabbos. Friday. Friday. Yeah. Anyway, what's the point? So you were of ten or something. <laughs> yeah, I mean, we're going to have more about this later. You want me to tell? When you were there, <laughs> I, I, I was, I was, if you want to know the story? I'll tell you very briefly the story. I was stand I was, had a meeting with, with the bank person in the bank and we were meeting in one of the, in one of the offices and then he went to print out some paperwork and come back for me to sign some stuff. I walk out into the lobby because the guy was taking a long time and I'm like, just, you know, like. I have time here, I'm sitting down in a cubicle, or not a cubicle, in an office, I'd rather just like stretch my legs and walk around. I just see some people coming in and out, and one guy caught my eye. And I'm like, just somehow subconsciously, I'm like, I don't know if my, I was wondering like, how often do these guys get robbed, or what would a robber look like? It just, for whatever reason, like the word robber crossed just flashed, across my mind. This is legit, this is 100% legit. And at that point, I actually went back into the office. The bank man, the, the, I don't know if he's a manager, or whatever that bank, Dude came back in with the paperwork, filled it out. At some point, another guy comes in to his office and says, uh, we need to deal with something. He's like, yeah, I know, I'm dealing with a lot of stuff today. He's like, no, and he passes him a folded note. My guy reads it, folds it back up. The other guy walks out. He says, okay, I'll deal with it soon. The other guy walks out. He says, we were just robbed. A note a note robbery. That's where they just hand, pass, hand the note. And I think the bank staff, they're... Uh, this is, not, this is not trying to give advice about how to rob a bank very easily and get away with it. I don't know that the guy's gonna get away with it. I'm just saying, pass a note, apparently the training is, you hand over whatever, a certain amount of money, and that's, you let them go, that's it, and then the police will deal with it later. It's not worth hostage situations, not worth calling police and having them swarm the building, that's not, not worth it for anybody involved. Good for you. Yeah. So, so, my guy, so my guy is like, okay, now you go. I'm like, okay, I will go. I'm out of here. I'm not staying around for how this plays out.
1: You didn't have time to
0: sign the paperwork. I signed the paperwork, and then I bounced. (laughs) I signed the paperwork, and that's it. Yeah.
2: I'll watch it on the 6 o'clock.
1: Yeah, basically. (laughs) Okay.
0: Basically. It was in the the neighborhood. Anyway, so, yeah.
1: Getting back to your story. Um, But... You know, we always learn that, you know, the perspective of Judaism or about is that, right, this is all to our benefit, so we can make the right choice and grow stronger. But, right. But, but from the get go, I mean, it, so God has, knows everything, and everything was predetermined, so he yep. knew exactly what was going to happen, so the, and then he knew, right, and then we'd feel guilty all these generations, and we'd be paying for it. I still don't understand, no, I don't see the
0: net. I don't know, I don't know that I'll ever be able to explain it to you in a way that you will accept it. I'm just saying, because I, I, we've had this conversation before, I don't know that I'm going to pull out any, any other magical explanation that's going to be better than, than any of the ones that I've said you know, prior. The core idea here is that God has already created a reality where there's perfection and everything is easy. And that's heaven with the angels. That's already, God already did that. God wanted to create a space in which the stakes are much higher, where the risk-reward is amped up. And the way risk-reward works is, the greater the, the, greater the reward, you want a greater reward, the greater the risk. Right? The angels have no risk, there's no reward. There's no risk to living the angelic life. What's the risk? that you're gonna do the wrong thing, it's not possible. There's no risk for the angels, therefore the reward is also. I, there's no skin in the game. Are you with me on this? But so for us, what's the greatest risk reward? The great reward is the stre- you knowing that you were able to stand at that crossroads, know what's right, but know what also feels good, whatever, and, and still do the right thing, even though it doesn't feel good. That's, that, that's well, the reward. The risk is that we- the risk is that we do the wrong thing. The risk is that we do the wrong thing because we perceive it to be to our benefit. We perceive it to be the good. The reward is that we don't do, the the is that we don't do it. We just feel better. And number one, we feel better. Number two, God certainly uh, rewards us for that. Number three, the soul becomes uh, invigorated and stronger. The soul flexes its muscles. Because of that, the soul is able to overpower. The body's sense of right and wrong. There's a lot that happens. The, the purpose of creation is fulfilled because that's why God created this in the first place for the great reward that right? God created this world, not just heaven, but also earth, to get the great reward of us doing this. And that's there's more to talk about, but I, I, I want stay, to stay consistent here with the, with the plot. So the point is like this. Before the sin, we have right and wrong, two definitions, right and wrong. Um, after the sin, Adam and Eve now have an experience of a different definition, which is good and bad. What feels good, what doesn't feel good. And oftentimes, not always, sometimes what's, what's right feels great. And what's wrong feels terrible. That's, that's easy. That's much easier. But oftentimes they cross, so that what's right feels bad. Sure, I can help my friend move, but I don't want to. I don't want to. Because that's like, I don't want to schlep boxes. Just don't want to. And the wrong thing feels great. Everyone come with their own examples, right? Whatever it is. And now we're standing in the middle. And the question is, what are we choosing? There's like four points here. And by the way, this is now not just two-dimensional. It's three or four-dimensional. There's many more pieces that I'm omitting, obviously, for the sake of of clarity. Because life is very complicated, right? But the point is that we're, we're standing at the crossroads. We're in the middle. And we have right, wrong, good, bad. What are we choosing? So many different options. What are we choosing? Adam and Eve, before the sin, didn't know of good and bad. You know why? Because they never tasted the forbidden fruit. They didn't know how good something wrong could taste. They had no idea. They thought, like we all thought, that if it's wrong, it's probably very bad. And if it's right, it's probably very good. They never had the moral confusion of tasting something bad and having a taste Pretty good. Yes? You with me on this? Okay. We all come... This all happens in life. At some point, this is what we encounter. We encounter the good taste of what's wrong and sometimes the bad taste of what's right. And now it becomes confusing. And now subsequently, once that happens, once that happens, every choice henceforth, from that moment on, every time we're faced with a choice... In our heads, there's always a thought, uh uh-oh, do I go by what I know is right and what I know is wrong, or do I go by how I feel, what's good versus what's bad? And now, good luck undoing that knowledge. You can't undo that knowledge. Once you know, once you know that something, by the way, there's more, there's another package of locks. If anybody wants to open it up, it's available. Once we know, once we know That the good thing may not feel good. And the bad thing might feel great. I just netted $3,000. That was easy. I just wrote a note. Never even had to brandish a weapon. I'm not advocating this, by the way. (laughs) You should know. This is not, uh, and past performance is not indicative of future results either. Um, But once I know that, now it's in my head. It's always going to be in my head. Adam and Eve, once they tasted from the forbidden fruit, in other words, once they ate from, once they partook in an experience that God said is wrong, but they perceived it to be good, now all bets are off. Now it's confusing. Welcome to life. Did they have an evil inclination from the beginning? Yes. But if it's never been fed, we've never created. The, the, the synapses, I don't know, I'm just making up words we never created the pathways, the neural pathways, that said to ourselves, oh, this could be wrong, but it could be very good. As long as we've never created that connection, then we'll remain naive, and we'll remain true to, to that, objective re, that, that objective definition. The moment we create the, the, the wires that cross now though, now it's crossed, and now it is, it is what it is now. Good luck. Good luck uncrossing those wires. It's very hard to get, back to get back to the place of innocence, to undo the knowledge or the experience or the awareness of how good something could be, even when it is objectively wrong. So this answers, I think, all of the questions that I asked before. Number one, why did God not want them to eat from the tree of knowledge? God's trying to withhold knowledge? No. God's trying to withhold knowledge complicated knowledge. God's trying to withhold. It's like a parent to a child. What you, you want your child to experience all the vices of life and say, oh, hey, that actually feels good. That, that's, that's healthy parenting? is to throw your kid into that situation and say, try this. It's illegal, but doesn't it taste good? And now, now your choice. Is that, would anyone set up their kid in that way? Of course not. You would tell your kid, if it's wrong, don't try it. Because you know if they do, It might actually feel good and now they're going to be in a a very compromised situation or very complicated situation you would never want to put your kid in that in that space god didn't want to put adam and eve in that space so he said there's right and there's wrong stick with that definition yes it's a tree of good knowledge what does that mean it's not a magical supernatural tree it's not supernatural it's the wrong tree but it still tastes good and god didn't want them to have that experience would you tell your kid, try these narcotics, they're very addictive. They're wrong, they're going to destroy your life, but they're very addictive. Go try it. Would you set, would you set your child up for that? Why would you do that?
1: But he did not have, to have that experience.
0: So that answers the question of why God holds back the tree of knowledge. God doesn't want us to have knowledge? Not that type of knowledge, No. How could a tree give knowledge? It's not giving knowledge, it's giving an experience. An experience that tastes good and feels good, even though it's illegal, per God's command. Um, oh, now about the nakedness. Before, this, before they ate from the tree, they were, they were not wearing clothes, and they were not ashamed, they were unaware. And afterwards, they're aware. What, what happens there? It's the same idea. There was a na- naivete before the sin. And the naivete manifests itself like children... In a lack of self consciousness, Adam and Eve were not aware of the body, of their bodies, and, and shame and, 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 and that, whole, that whole genre of physicality was not on their radar. They were innocent and naive like children that sometimes, little kids, they just take off their clothes and be running around the house. And it's not even a thing. Not that they're not aware of, 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 of what it means. They're not looking at self. They're not self-aware. When we become self-aware, now we become bashful. Now we become ashamed. Now we want to cover up. Now we're feeling because we're aware of what's going on inside. So now it's like, okay, let's 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 cover up. Adam Adam hides after the sin. He feels ashamed, existentially ashamed. Shame kicks in when we align with a definition of self that is contrary to the definition of the Creator. Shame kicks in when we know we're enjoying something we shouldn't. Does that make sense? That's where shame, that's the birth of shame. The birth of shame is eating from a tree. The birth of shame is having an experience that we experience as good when we know we should not be having that experience. That's the birth of shame and the birth of clothing, which is symbolic of this covering up of the shame. The shame is, I know I feel guilty. I know that I did something that I shouldn't be doing, but it feels so good, but I shouldn't be doing it. Okay, that's where the shame, internal shame comes in. I don't have a list of my questions, I didn't write them down, so I, I, I can't, uh, not I can't, but I, I'm not lining them up in my head right now one by one, but this should answer all of the questions. It also tells us something very important about, and this is all based on Maimonides as expounded upon in Kabbalah and Jewish mysticism it explains to us what life was like in the Garden of Eden before the sin what life was like was and it was only for a few hours it was for a very short amount of time what life was initially for the human being was a place of clarity where what's right was seen as right what's wrong was seen as wrong and that was it that was the only definition that was needed right and wrong post-sin things are more complicated Posts and things are more complicated. Which leads to the reality that we live in. The reality where we know what's right and wrong, and yet we make choices. Sometimes we make choices that are contrary to what we know to be right. And later on, we regret these choices. And we ask ourselves, what was I thinking? Or we tell others, I I don't know what I was thinking. Or we tell others, that's not not me. I don't know how I did that, that's not me. So, 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 first of all, that was you, because you did it. And we know what we were thinking. We were thinking all sorts of excuses and justifications and rationalizations. We had so many narratives floating, you know, swimming through our brains to allow us to make this decision, starting from the most essential one or the most basic rationalization of, it looks good, I know it tastes good, I'm going to do it anyway. Even though I know it's wrong, I'm going to do it.
1: Maybe you didn't have all the
0: that at the time.: Sure, that's possible..: like, that Yes. Yeah, so, so yeah, yeah, so it's possible that we could do something that we only realized later was not exactly you know the right thing. But that's in the scheme of things, that is that's innocence or. Ah, that's fine. That's okay. Don't feel guilty about that. If you didn't know, you can didn't it know.. Impact your life. No, 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 no it can definitely impact your life. <clears throat> and, and I'm not trying to minimize that. But we're talking about here more I would say more intentional cases. More cases of where a person knows, they know that it's wrong. And yet in the moment they justified it, they rationalized it. They said, well, you know, X, Y, and Z, this is why it's okay, or this is why I deserve it, or this is, you know, or it just tastes good, it feels good, and therefore I'm gonna do it and you know that was come the first chapter come, of overcoming That was the first and that's I actually printed out a a f um a list of one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten. 10 different categories of folly and correction. Because in this text, what we've done, and we're, we're coming to the end of, of the book, what we've done in this throughout this text is describe what are the rationalizations? What are the things, that, what are the stories that we tell ourselves to allow ourselves, so to speak, to make bad choices? And the first one was, looks good, tastes good. Adam and Eve, right? Looks good, I know it's wrong, but did uh, you, you see this fruit? Looks so good. Looks so good. I know it's wrong. I'll deal with it later. Right now, I gotta have it. It's so good. It's so good. I deserve something good, and this is good. That's the first, that's the first one. It's the first rationalization. And it all comes back to the sin of the tree of knowledge, of good and evil. If we had the original knowledge of right and wrong, if that was the only knowledge we had, or if we somehow discarded the new knowledge and went back to that. OG knowledge, the original knowledge of what's right and wrong, we would say to ourselves, it looks great. I'm sure it tastes great. I'm sure it'll feel great. Wonderful. Not denying any of that. True, 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 true. However, it's wrong. And that's the only metric by which I will judge my life. I will make my decisions based on right and wrong. If a person can do that, it means that they're thinking, they're being aware, they're living life pre-sin. Does that make sense? They're living life to Torah guides us to that type of behavior saying notwithstanding how it makes you feel notwithstanding how it'll make you look or feel or you know experience aside from all that stuff this is what's right this is what's wrong it's like any co any law book right any any rule of, of law law says when you come to red light stop i don't like this stuff it's not about you <laughs> it's not about it's literally not about you when you come to a red light, stop until it turns green. Doesn't make me feel good. I feel, I feel, I feel limited when I have to stop at a red light. And I'm, I'm being withheld from my destination. World's smallest violin starts playing. We don't care. So
1: we can't get to the pre-sin stage.
0: A hundred percent, and we know that we can live pre-sin because in every moment, forget every moment, in one moment, one decision, one, one, one time that we're at that crossroads, right? Think about it, a moment recently or not recently, when you were at that crossroads, when you felt like, okay, I know this is right, I know this is wrong, but the right thing would not be good for me and the wrong thing would be good for me, what should I do? And you said, you know what? It doesn't matter what's good or not good for me. I'm still going to do what's right. If you can do that once, you can do that again. And if you can do that once and again, you can do that every time. Will we do that every time? Odds are not, because we're not sadiqim. But could we? 100%. So your question was, could we live free sin? The answer is 100%. One day at a time. Not one day at a time. One moment, Literally one moment at a time. Literally one decision at a time. Are we ever going to be that consistent? Likelihood of that is? Very very small. We call that person, by the way, who lives, who does that every moment, a benoni. A a be, uh, in Tanya, in, in the book of Tanya, which is a Hasidic uh, masterpiece, is, this type of person is called the benoni, which means like the... No, no, no. no. The that's in-betweener. the in betweener. the the person that's right in that sweet spot. Not a tzaddik. A tzaddik wouldn't even be benoni. ben-o-ni. Yeah, a tzaddik would not even have the a tzaddik is living completely pre sin. Doesn't even have the temptation. of, but it feels good. But it looks. So That's not even in the in the wheelhouse of the tzaddik. Tzaddik is completely right. Wrong. The benoni is someone who knows that the tzaddik just has the v or just has the two points. The benoni. Sadak has like one line, or one axis. The bainini is someone who knows the other thing, who's maybe even tasted it in the past. But at this point, says, notwithstanding the fact that I know this would be so good, not going to do it. Not going to do it. You know, someone who's kept kosher all their life, someone who never tasted something not kosher. I'm, I'm going to, one could argue different ways. I would say, from my own experience, they may not be tempted to a cheeseburger. Why? Cause I don't know. Never had it. <laughs> like what's what? Does it tempt? No. Someone who's had it, right? It, and if let's say, let's just say for argument's sake, it tasted good. Now it's like okay, but now I'm gonna be now I'm gonna go kosher. Now I'm gonna be kosher. So now it's now there's a, now there's a okay now now there's a a challenge at least. Right now, this is what we feel to be right, but this is what we know to also taste good. Okay, so, na- so now it's a choice. So what I'm saying is, in our lives, we all have perfection elements of per- areas of perfection, in other words, areas in which we don't know how it tastes. In other words, we don't forget forget about this specific example. We don't know that what's wrong is good because we've never we never tried it. We're still naive in that area. So there are certain areas in which we're tzaddikim. We're, we're perfect, like Adam and Eve before this. said, we've never tasted it, so we don't even know. There are certain areas in which we, we, make, we, we, we succumb to, the, to what's wrong that feels good. There is in which we fail, so to speak, in which we succumb to that bottom half of the, of the X. And there are other areas in which we're tempted, but we still make the right choice. That's the story of most human beings on earth. Area, some areas in which we're not tempted, or any, otherwise, we're, 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 we're at Tzaddik level. Other areas in which we're at Russia level, we are, we are succumbing to temptation. And in other areas in which we're tempted, we still withhold, we hold back. So the book, this book, Overcoming Folly, right? This is what this cover looks like, Overcoming Folly. The book is all about recognizing the thought patterns, the justifications, the rationalizations, the narratives that we spin in our heads that get us, that result in choosing, making bad choices. That was actually acting in a negative way. That oftentimes is self-harming, let alone other harming, let alone God-harming, if that's even a thing. But but most often it's self-harming, self-harming behavior. And we look back and we kick ourselves, what was I thinking, what was I doing, how did I do this, why did I do this? and we messed up, and we hurt someone, we hurt ourselves, and even if we hurt someone else, it hurts us also, what were we thinking? And in the moment, we had a whole narrative. We had a whole story that we told ourselves. The point of this book has always been from the beginning, from page one. We're now on page uh, 350. The point of this book from page one has been to become metacognitive, which is a modern psychological term with ancient uh, appearances, including in this text. Metacognitive means to be aware of how you're thinking, of what you're thinking. Not to just allow the narration to play on and, and you're oblivious to it until you find yourself on the other side of a decision. Like, how did I get here? I have no idea how I got here. What was I thinking? What was I doing? Become Metacognitive means you tune into the narrative that's spinning in your head. You tune into the storyline that's unfolding, that's unspooling in your brain so that you're aware of What's leading into the decisions that you make? And as you become more and more self-aware or more and more metacognitive, you can then slow it down and say, Hold on one second, I recognize that pattern. I know that argument, it usually ends with this decision, with that choice, with that behavior that then that, that, that then ends with me wallowing in regret and remorse. So how do we slow how do we how do we stop that from happening? When we slow it down, we have a shot. If it's happening without our conscious awareness and it's just happening behind the scenes and the narrative plays out and the next thing you know, we get a notification of, oh, you've made that bad decision. We're like, oh, darn. By the way, it's still our, I'm not letting us, ourselves off the hook. I'm just saying it happens because we're less, we're maybe not so aware of this process. The more we're aware, the more we can combat it. So I prepared here, again, a list of 10 follies call them follies because in Hebrew, it's Shtuyot. It's a hard word to translate. It's much better in the Hebrew. Pass these down, please. I'm going to put this up on the screen as well. We're going to explore these together. Folly and correction. This is going to be a, a nonsense, right? Yeah, foolishness, nonsense. Yeah. Something completely ridiculous. So let's, um, let's, let's, let's. I'm going to put this up on the screen. Give me one second. Let me share this. Folly and Correction. All right, let me check in with our online crew. Um, can you guys see that? Where it says, cabal and coffee is Folly and Correction? Yes. Okay, amazing. Okay, so I'm going to make this a little bit larger. Hold on. Why not? Okay, and let's go through these. This should. This is a summary of the entire book. <laughs> at least to the best of my ability, to summarize it. The, the the first folly we dealt with all at the beginning of the book was the most basic, elemental type of, or elementary type of temptation, which or, or, uh, of temptation which is the folly of temptation, which is I like how that looks, nothing no, nothing more elaborate than that. I like how that looks. That looks amazing. I want to try it. The correction is in other words the counter thought. I, probably, I don't think I spent enough time, or I don't think I sufficiently explained this. Basically, once we're, we become metacognitive and, and, and aware of, of the justifications that we have, then the goal is to, to give ourselves an argument, ourselves, not for anyone else, give ourselves an argument to counter that narrative with another narrative to help steer the decision away from the negative decision. So when, when we catch ourselves thinking, oh, that looks good. Now, I know it's wrong, but I like how it looks. So the correction is, This is degrading. I have loftier matters to pursue. I'm a human being. I should be running after that just because it looks good or tastes good or feels good. Come on, that's degrading. That's like that's that's so basic. I'm a human being with a purpose, with a mission. I should I should be pursuing higher level things, not this lower level. I I have to eat this apple because it looks nice and red. Come on, Uh, am I an animal? An animal does that. Animals say, "Oh, this looks good. Let me get it." I'm an animal. I should be an animal? Just because it looks good, just because it feels. So again, this is the argument, the self-argument that can hopefully uh, steer us away from negativity. The next is the folly of addiction. And again, I don't mean that in a clinical sense, I just mean that in the colloquial sense, whereas it's not just I like how it looks, but I need to have it. Like, oh my gosh, I need to have this. This is like, uh, I must. The correction is, no, this is evil. And so again, we're trying to use that definition of, in this case, we're trying to use the definition of wrong Right to try to steer us away from that need to have something that we know is wrong, we should double down on the fact that, no, this is wrong. And as as it's wrong, it's really death. It's really disconnected. It's really all sorts of not good stuff for me. The next thing is folly of rationalization, where a person says, ah, it's not so bad anyway. Ah, it's not so bad. The correction is, no, we have to know that this is destroying me. This is really unhealthy for me. So it's doubling down on the fact that, no, this is actually actively... You know, uh, um, hurting me. So if we were to feel, to be able to feel the result of our actions before we chose that action, we could steer away from that action. In other words, just like when we make an action, a negative choice, at the end, we're like, oh, that hurt. If we could feel the hurt before we make the choice, it might steer us away from that. So when we catch ourselves saying, ah, it's not so bad. No, it is bad and it will hurt me. I'm not gonna do it. Next, the folly of contentedness, which is, nah, I'm better off this way. It's good. No, once again, we double down with a similar uh, correction. This is unsustainable and destructive. This is not good for me. Next, the folly of discretion, which means no one will know. That's, a, that's an all-time classic. You know what? I'm going to do it. No one will ever know. So therefore, if no one knows, then it's like I can tell myself, I can convince myself that it never happened. You, you know the, the, the famous philosophical question of if a tree falls in the forest and no one's around, does it make a sound? I think the real thing that human beings ponder and contemplate is if no one knows if no one heard the sound did the tree ever fall oftentimes our sense of reality our sense of reality is defined by did it make an impact did anyone else hear about it or know about it and we convince ourselves that as long as no one knows about it then i never did it and that's how we justify behavior well no one knows about it so i obviously didn't do it if i did it people would know about it are you with me on this if the tree was never heard if the tree falling was never heard then maybe it never fell that's how you can have people who committed crimes you know convince themselves they never did anything i don't know if that's why maybe there's other reasons why i i i i, I back away from that because i'm sure that's a more complicated phenomenon Robert, but there is yeah i
1: sometimes think of your story when you're a young boy in the candy store. And you were looking at the kosher labels. Oh, yeah, yeah, And the manager said, don't
0: worry, I won't tell. Yeah, yeah, well, it, was, it, was the news, it was in the newsstand, the Squirrel, Murray Avenue newsstand, that's where I used to play Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles on arcade, back in the day. One time I fed enough quarters that I beat the game. I was a big Leonardo fan. I think he had the uh, stick, I think he had the stick. Blue was always my favorite color. But that's not about that. But it is. So I was, yeah, I was perusing the... It was, a, it, was a, it was a fridge with drinks. I was looking at the labels. The guy's like, what are you looking for? I said, kosher symbols. He's like, don't worry. I won't tell anybody anyway. <laughs> right? If no one knows about it, then did it ever happen? Right? That's, that's what his argument was. Well, if no one knows, then... In your then, mind, you, I don't
1: know if you said it, but you said, no, I'm for myself.
0: I'm yeah, of course. It's not about anyone else knowing, because I know about it. Why, why, is, why is my knowledge... Not enough for me, for myself. But again, oftentimes we, we, we judge our impact. Just look at social media, right? We judge our worth based on how many people like us. In other words, if I post and no one likes it or no one sees it, so then I didn't even post. Well, wait a second, I, I'm not... So many topics to talk about. Um, we, we value, oftentimes we value or we judge or we, we define ourselves based on the impact that it has on others. And while that might be noble in noble situations, it's, in no, it's not noble in not noble situations. And one of the not noble situations is where it's, it's allowing us to make negative choices and to do negative things because well, no one's gonna know about it and if no one knows about it, then it never happened, they didn't do it because no one knows about it. And the correction that we said is, it's written all over my face. What do you mean no one's gonna know about it? You don't give yourself that much credit. Everyone can tell by a look, by a glance, by a word, by a story, by this and that. Everyone knows what you're thinking. Everyone knows what you did. It's like, it's like a guy who's about to rob a bank. And you, uh, you lock eyes with him across the, the lobby. And you're like, huh, I wonder what a bank robber would look like. Let me go back into that little cubicle, that little office. It's, I mean, that's, that was my story on Friday, two days ago. At 3 p.m. The folly of justification. Next. folly of justification is I'm too weak. I can't. I can't withstand the temptation. Or they made me do it. It's my friend's fault, whatever. So number one, I'm too weak. The correction is I have the strength. God gave me a godly soul. I have the strength. They made me do it. My friends made my peer peer pressure. Ah, I own my own choices. Can't blame anyone else. The folly of self-satisfaction is look what I did. Right? Oh my gosh, look what I did. I'm amazing. And then there's no growth. Because I've already achieved everything. Nope, I'm only doing what I've been charged to do. And I, there's still more to do. Folly of arrogance, I'm perfect. Correction is I'm human, not divine. I must work hard to succeed. Folly of weakness, I'm too tired. Correction is studying Torah heals and rejuvenates. Folly of, I'm just moving through this quick because I want to get inside to the text. Final one is folly of business. That's the one that we spent the most time on. Takes up the most pages, most chapters in our book for good reason. It's trying to correct the balance of the work, life, spirituality imbalance, the folly business is I need to make a living. Therefore, I'm gonna sacrifice the values that I have and the spirituality that I I need to engage in because I need to go to work. I I don't have time to pray or study or spend time with loved ones. I need to make a living. The correction is no, my blessing comes from God and thus if I ignore God, then how is that helpful to my blessing? All right, so these are all the follies uh, that we covered in this book and uh, we're not gonna cover any new ones um, the corrections are all here as well. And it all goes back to this. All the follies are emanating from that sin of the tree of knowledge of good and evil. And the truth is, in a microcosmic way, in a microcosmic sense, we all have that moment of sinning with the tree of knowledge of good and evil. We all have that moment in life in which we, we, we started off pure, innocent, and naive as little kids. And we were told right and wrong. We're like, okay, I guess that's it. And then at some point, either someone told us or someone did something, or we did something, or whatever it is, or we stumbled upon it, and it tasted good, it felt good, it actually worked out for us, the wrong thing worked out for us, right? And now we are, and now things are complicated. And Now life has become way more complicated than it started off as. So what's the goal? What's the goal? We have these corrections. We have these little uh, um, antidotes. We have, you know, when we get ill, we have a little, a little medicine, a little medication that we can take. We, we, we have these thoughts in our head. We have like a counter. You know, we have this neutralizing thought to kind of steer us away. But it all comes back to the core, the core idea, and that is that we're not thinking straight in the moment. We're thinking along a different line. We're thinking along lines of what feels good for me and not what is right or wrong. Susan, jump in. Um, w-
1: is it possible at that list that you just made it's, I just looked.
0: It's not in the book. Did you? Did no, you no, no. I, I wrote that. I wrote that up. Okay. Yes, I will. Um, I will. What am I going to do? I am going to.
1: That's another in-person perk. <laughs> yeah,
0: well, I'm going to create a PDF. Of this. And. Yeah. Um, and then send it. Save as PDF. Let's save it to downloads. Okay, and then I'm going to share it on the Zoom. Hopefully you guys can, uh, can get that. How do I share? Let's see.
2: Can I add what might be an 11th?
0: Yeah, for sure.
2: Um, and I don't know whether it's an 11th, but it came to me and I wrote, jotted it down.
0: I deserve it. Mm. Where does that fit it? I deserve it as kind of... Um, no, I deserve it as good. That's a good one. Yeah, it's somewhere in there. Yeah, I, I guess I omitted it. I deserve it as good. No, it could be very bad. It could be very, I deserve it, it could be very bad. It's like I owe myself one, so I'm going to just gonna give myself this, whatever it is, right? Because I deserve it. I'll, I'll fix it. I'll figure it out later. I'll, I'll, I'll worry about the aftermath later, but right now... I deserve it. I, how is it that I've shared so many things? Oh, in the chat. That's how we do it in the chat. All right, here we go. Um, okay. KNC falling correction PDF is shared. So you can download it. If you can't download it, email me privately. Or I'm not saying you specifically, Susan, but anyone who can't download it or wants to download it, just email me and I'll, I'll send it. Oh, I got it. Okay, amazing. Awesome. Okay, now... That book. Okay, so now I think we're ready to jump in. So I, but I, I, there's a lot of information, I think I, this tech, this book that we're studying, is gold. It's like it's it's the greatest thing, the absolute greatest thing. Practical, relevant, mystical, Kabbalistic. It's got it's got the magic combo. I just want to be very clear here before we jump inside. There is pre tree of knowledge reality. There's post tree of knowledge reality pre pre-tree of knowledge reality pre-tree. Pre-tree of knowledge reality is where you know what's right, you know what's wrong, you have clarity. Naive, clarity, simple, pure clarity, it's right, it's wrong. I'm gonna do what's right, not gonna do what's wrong, because it's wrong. Why would I do what's wrong? Done, finish, finito on the conversation. Post sin, post-tree of knowledge reality is post Again, it's not a magical tree. It's literally tasting forbidden fruit and being, that actually tastes really good. You know what? Sometimes the forbidden fruit tastes sweeter because you know it's forbidden. And once you have that experience, now, uh uh-oh, uh-oh, now it's complicated. Now it's like, well, it tastes good. I know it's wrong, but it tastes good. So now I'm going to start justifying. That's where this list comes in. This list comes in. This list comes in once we've tasted. If we never tasted it, we're not going to do all these mental gymnastics, because why would we? It's wrong, it's not gonna do it. But once we've tasted it, and now we know it's good, all right, well I like how it looks, I need to have it, it's not so bad anyway, I'm better off this way. Now I'm gonna start creating, I'm I'm now gonna start creating narratives to justify, to get myself past the mechanical arm that otherwise is down, to allow myself to do this behavior that I know is wrong, but I know also feels good. That's where these mental gymnastics come in. So on a simple level, this book, is designed to take us from post tree of knowledge awareness to pre tree of knowledge awareness. Does that make sense? To return us back to a place of simple definitions. Right, wrong, no other babamises, no other stories, no other narratives. All, every time we spin in there, oh no, no, but, 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 shut it down. How do we shut it down? All these, all these counter narratives can help shut it down. So the goal is to get back to the way things were simply before, before the tree of knowledge. But as we said last week, and as we'll say today, there's another objective. And that objective is, there's another tool in our, in our tool belt. And that is not to just get back to the way things were before the sin, but to go to an even higher level. To go to an even higher level where, where it's not just that we know what's right, and we know what's wrong, and we can understand why this is right, and this is wrong. Notwithstanding how we feel, but we understand this is right, this is wrong. But to go to a deeper level where we're not even justifying it based on right and wrong levels, but simply because that's the way it is, that's the way it's going to be, and therefore we have this commitment to truth that transcends logic. In other words, there's foolish narratives, that's the folly, there's healthy narratives, which are the correction, and then there's something higher than even the healthy correction, which is a commitment to truth, for the sake of truth, not even having, having the healthy... uh, Narratives impact that decision. All right, let's jump into chapter two. That's called holy folly. We started that. We started talking about that last week. Holy folly means it's a commitment to what is right beyond rationale. Just like foolishness is a commitment to what's wrong beyond rationale. Like I know it's going to hurt me. I don't care. It it, it looks good. It doesn't make any sense. But we're not thinking clearly. There's a way to not think clearly in a positive way also, which is I'm not limiting my commission of positivity to the fact that it simply, you know, makes sense or this, that or the other. Or it's healthy for me. I'm doing it because God said and I'm doing it and it doesn't matter. And that means we do a mitzvah in a way that is just not, not limited by any, you know, limitations, not limited to my understanding or my feeling or my mood. It's completely, it's complete commitment that transcends the limitations of, of seichel. <laughs>
1: Has no rationale too, right?
0: Yeah, so the mitzvahs that have no rationale, those are easier to do that way because they don't have rationale anyway. They're chukim, right? But the ones that, that could be rationalized to do it in a way that, is, that, that, that expresses pure commitment. All right, so now let's jump inside and let's read the text inside. Um, yeah, um, one thing I'm noticing in the, in the notes, uh, in the comments yeah, one of the main consequences of eating the fruit of knowledge of good and evil is that we humans gain the knowledge that we would die. The answer is yes, that is correct. Why is death connected to this? Because once we taste and experience evil, if we would live forever, that means the evil would also live forever. You with me on this? If we experience evil, and we experience this as good, because now we have that experience, and so we've enjoyed evil... And then if we would still live eternally, like Adam and Eve were initially slated to live eternally, if we live eternally, that means that the evil experience will also live eternally. And God does not want evil to live eternally. That's not part of God's plan. So therefore, God renders human beings mortal so as to put an end to the experience of evil. Does that make sense? God does not want evil to live on for perpetuity. So therefore, God ends the life of human beings so that human beings who Have experienced evil should not carry that evil into eternality.
1: Is that why he said, if you that, if you eat this fruit, you will surely
0: die? Yeah, that's exactly that. That's the way he explained the Kabbalah. The reason of the correlation between, because that's another question we could have asked in the beginning, is it? And, and God says if you eat the, from the tree, you're going to die? How does that make sense? And they didn't die, by the way, right away. Adam lived for 930 years. So what does it what does it mean that you're going to die? First of all, he didn't. It means that now mortality is visited upon humanity. But what's the connection between that and eating a tree? How does that that even make sense? And the answer is what I just explained. Because eating the tree is not, again, it's not a magical, mystical experience. It's simply experiencing evil. And if that person who knows now evil, who knows evil and has enjoyed evil, lives forever, that means that that memory, that experience is also living forever. And God does not want evil to live forever. That's not God's plan. God says, I want evil to end at a certain point. When Mashiach comes and there's a resurrection of the dead, what that means is that the new body that's formed is going to be free of that experience of negativity. And the soul is, has been cleansed of that experience. And that's the 11 months of, uh, of cleansing that happens before the soul continues on its journey in the afterlife. So the soul that's pristine comes back into the pristine body. And now we got, we got a So that after that, we'll all live forever? Yes. So we'll become angels. No, no. We, no, no. We'll be humans. Humans living forever, but without the knowledge of evil. Mashiach. That's that's a it's a bigger conversation, but let's let's limit it to that right now because I really want to read this chapter inside. All right, here we go. Let's jump in. Yeah, yeah. Pass these around, please. Thank you very much. Um, this is chapter two, so you'll have to turn a few pages. to chapter two. Um, it's on page three seventy two. I hope it's in there, in those copies. No. 367. Really? Oh, all right. Well, you can stop passing it around. Oh, that's mm, super awkward on my end. All right. The good news is the good news is that I will quickly, I'm going to quickly do a printout. Don't worry. You guys are in good hands. Um, 368 to 373. Hold on. And we're in the print room, so this is great. 68. The three. I'm going to start reading, so you guys will, will listen in, and then uh, we'll take it from there. NC print, scale to fit. Okay, all right, it's, it should start printing very soon, if all goes well. Okay, let's. Uh, I'm going to start reading, and uh, Sandrine, you're set. Mm-hmm. You, you got the text. <laughs> uh, you know what? Someone else can use it because I have. I have it up on the screen. Um, it's. <laughs> yes, you did. Three, but I'll, I'll read it nice and loud. Three seventy-two. Three seventy-two, chapter two. All right, here we go. I'm going to share my screen. And uh, the printouts are going to come out very soon because not a lot of pages. And it should be ready to go. Okay, chapter two, the truth. So he starts this chapter by saying to explain. Let's explain what's going on. Copies are ready. Second. Look at that. On demand. All right, all the other copies can be put away so as not to confuse. Here, leave one for Matt also, please. Okay. The truth to explain. God made man upright. Man, of course, (coughs) as always, is not gender specific. It means Adam, mankind. God made the human being upright. Now, this means two things. This means two things. Upright has a double meaning. Upright means physically. The human being stands on two feet. Unlike an animal that walks on all fours, the human being is upright upright. But it also means that God made the human being yashar, which means, it means like, yeah, but it means like with the head, with a cup, with a head. You know what it means upright? Upright means that when we stand upright, our head is here and our heart is beneath. And then our limbs and our extremities are beneath that, which means that in an ideal state, we, we start with what we know is right. And then we, and that modifies our feelings, our emotions, and that leads to behavior. And that was instead of being led by our heart, which I know the fall of your heart is, you know, whatever, is a, is a, is a statement, but I'm not necessarily referring to that. The point is, like, instead of saying, oh, but it tasted good, of course we're going to have it. No, we start off with what we know is right or what we know is wrong, and then, and then everything follows. That must relate to the, the Kabbalah. Of life, right, too, the same thing, the right? Yeah, exactly. The same thing with the tree of life, where you have the three intellectual faculties followed by the seven emotional, or the emotional, and the behavioral. Exactly the same, the same structure: top, middle, bottom. The same structure. That's the upright structure, as opposed to the all four. All fours means my head, my heart, my 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 everything's on the same. That's a whole challenge, Everything's mixed together. So I'm going to do what I feel like doing, even though I know it's wrong. That's where everything's mixed up. God made man upright, meaning the human being is has, has has a head, endowed with the godly power of perceptiveness. You see that that perceptiveness, of course, means uh, and, you know intellectual perception. Man needs to know and perceive the truth that for him the ultimate good is in spiritual good. In other words, you see that You see that line that for him the alt or him or her the ultimate good. Is the spiritual is in the spiritual good. In other words, what I should define as good for me is what's right, not what I feel. It's not what tastes, it's not the fruit that tastes the sweetest, which is good. It's the fruit that is the right fruit. That's good. A person should align their good with what is spiritually good. Constantly, that's the goal. Constantly progressing and cleaving to godliness, Torah and Mitzvot. And a person should also strive to reach a state that whatever contradicts these purposes is evil and utterly bitter. In other words, that you taste, that the forbidden fruit to you tastes fat, disgusting, bitter, gross. I don't want it. That's the goal of Avodah. That's the goal of service. To align one's own senses with right and wrong as explained above regarding all the calculations of how the sahars persuasion is absolutely false and evil. In other words, a person, if you look at the following correction sheet, all of them are saying what's right is good, and what's wrong is bad. Even though in the moment I say, no, no, no it's good, it's good, it's good, I'll tell you why it's good. The correction is, no, it's actually bad, it's destroying me. It's degrading, it's evil, it's destroying me, it's unsustainable, it's destructive, it's written all over my face, etc. That's the goal. The goal is to align our perception with the truth. Imagine if Adam and Eve would have told the serpent, oh, you're telling us that this tree is, would taste good? No, we think it tastes terrible. If God doesn't like it, it's gross. Imagine if they would have said that. What's the serpent going to say? Try it anyway? No. It's going to taste disgusting. So my grandfather he was, uh, um, the previous re- he was in the previous Rebbe's Chabad Yeshiva when he first came to America in the 1940s. When the previous Rebbe came to America in the 1940s, my grandfather, who, who, was, who grew up in Brownsville, New York, he went to the Lubavitch Yeshiva, and the previous Rebbe promised that all of his students, Yeshiva students, would not be conscripted into the, would not be drafted into the war and be sent overseas to the horrors of, of World War II, although certainly there were many that, uh, that did very brave things. But the, re- the previous Rebbe said, My students are not going to, be- gave a bracha, gave a blessing that they're not going to be drafted. My grandfather told the story many times. Maybe some of you heard him tell the story even. He told it here in Atlanta as well when he visited on occasion. And he, he, w- he went to the office in Manhattan and he went through all of the different stations and they checked physically. You know, they do the physical, they do this, that, check the hearing, check the eyes. He's a very, uh, very healthy young man. And he gets to the last station, the psychiatrist. And he sees that he's a Jewish psychiatrist. My grandfather recognized he's Jewish. My gran- and he recognized that my grandfather was Jewish. When They told everyone to, to, to strip their clothing. My grandfather still wore his tzitzis, his talus katan, right? He wore his, he didn't take off all school. He was wearing his uh, Jewish garb and his yarmulke. So he was clearly identified as Jewish. And this Jewish psychiatrist, secular Jewish psychiatrist lo- looks at him and says, uh, yeshiva student. Yeah, so where do you learn? He said, Lubavitch. Ah, Lubavitch. You guys follow orders. You would make a great soldier. (laughs) He says, you make a great soldier. He says, let me ask you a question. It's for text. Yeah, exactly. (laughs) If you were on the front lines and there was no kosher food, what would you do? grandfather says, I would eat it. Then I would throw it up. (laughs) And... He stamped my grandfather's papers as whatever the number. My grandfather would say, the. I remember he would say the code or the letter symbol. Basically, unfit. He stamped him unfit for service, and that was it. And he didn't get drafted. 4F. Was that, is it was a 4F? Yeah, it was 4F. Uh, unfit. And, I, I, you know, over the years, I've thought, like, what did my grandfather mean? That he would eat it and throw it up? And I think it's what this is saying. I mean, you have to eat to survive, but wouldn 't it be so distasteful to know that you're eating not kosher that you would then ha- your, your body wouldn't even contain it you would just throw it up that's that was his perspective that that he would eat it sure because he had to because' you know' it's, you have to survive but that it, it's, it would be so distasteful that it would come out that was the le- that 's how I understand it that 's what he 's saying here what he's saying here is that the goal of the hour. You know, hashtag goals. Our striving should be to reach a state where it's not. There's no contradiction between what's right and wrong and what feels good, what feels bad. What's right and wrong. Our mind should be so solidly connected with right and wrong that the opposite of right should actually taste bad. Should actually taste bad. Let's go back inside. Truly, man should be able to sense all this because of the divine perceptivity within him. In other words, we, it should be obvious that if it's wrong, it's bad. right? That should be the obvious thing. It should be. It should be. However, life is not so simple. How could he have been enticed by the persuasion of the Yetzirah? But this is a result of the sin of the tree. Let's continue and we're going to go for another few minutes just until uh, we finish the chapter. And we're going to close it out. Before man sinned, this is Adam and Eve, before mankind sinned, he already possessed the yitzhar heart and evil inclination. The Talmud comments, the Talmud comments that Adam was created with two inclinations, uh, sorry, the Talmud comments on the spelling of he formed vayitzhar with two yod's, that has an extra yod in the spelling, that Adam was created with two inclinations. Um, at that time, 374, his perception of godliness was so dominant that he was insensitive to matters of nature. So he had an evil inclination, but he was so perceptive of what God wanted that he was insensitive. And this translation is not the best translation. He was insensitive to himself and how he felt. It wasn't about my feeling of good and bad or what I like or what I don't like. It was about what God wanted. It was about truth. It was about right and wrong. It wasn't about me. As we quoted, learned earlier from Maimonides, his knowledge was intellectual and he did not perceive the so-called popular values. And again, this is not a good translation. It's not popular values, nothing popular here. He did not perceive sensual sensuality. He didn't perceive, and I mean that in the sense of his own senses. Adam and Eve, they did not perceive their own senses. It wasn't about them, how they felt. They weren't self-aware. Because of his intense sensitivity to godly matters, Adam and Eve, or maybe he's talking about Adam specifically here. Doesn't matter because he uses a singular. Either way, Adam and Eve, Adam, perceived God and had a, a, a sensitivity to godly matters. Another a sensitivity to right and wrong and not to, well, how does it make me feel? Does what's right make me feel good? Does what's wrong make me feel bad? Or maybe one makes me feel... Right? He, he wasn't aware of that. But he changed radically after the sin with an intensified natural sensitivity. Again, a sensual sensitivity. Now Adam and Eve are now sensitive. They're aware of their own senses and what tastes good, what feels good, what brings pleasure that might be contrary to what's right or wrong. Meaning that man now is fully aware of the attractiveness of the material world. In other words, now the human being is aware that the physical world and the forbidden fruit actually taste good to them. He became deeply aware of every natural and physical phenomenon. This sensitivity to the material causes the diminution of godly perceptivity, uh, perceptivity to know and sense the true welfare, as we have noted. In other words, the more one is aware of self, the more one cares about how one feels, the less one cares about what God thinks about it. That's the way it works. If I'm, if I'm attuned to how I feel, what makes, what brings me pleasure, the more I'm aware, the more I care about that. The less I care about some objective rule that God has determined. whether this is right or this is wrong. Do I really care that God deems this wrong? If I like it and it feels good for me, the more I care about myself, the less I care about that. It's a, it's a, it's a, um, it's a, it's a, it's like a seesaw. It's, na- it's a natural inverse relationship. This is the folly engendered by the eight, so hard by the evil inclination. He is so overwhelmed where the person is so overwhelmed with awareness of the physical world that he loses perspective, falls lower and lower, God forbid, and fails to conduct himself with reason and honest evaluation. The way the Yetzirah works, forget about Adam and Eve for a moment, for all of us, is that the Yetzirah, the evil inclination, has us uh, be so, become so entrenched in materialism and physicality in physical pleasure and pleasure-seeking that we soon, soon, no longer care about what's right and wrong. This is the folly of evil that is inferior to reason. In other words, that, that's what it means to follow evil and to be so inundated with the shtus, with the, with the foolishness of evil, that one stops thinking clearly. Wait, it's, it's, it's devastating, it's hurtful, it's wrong, it's going to hurt others, it's going to hurt myself. I don't care, it tastes good, I'm going to have it. That's where it's foolish. By contrast, the folly of holiness On the other extreme is also behavior along lines other than the rational, rather in a manner, though, that transcends reason. It's not beneath reason, it transcends reason. It means being committed to what's right, not only because it makes sense, but because an absolute commitment. It is not according to reason and natural perceptiveness, resulting from the tree of knowledge of good and evil, nor is it according to holy rationality. In other words, uh, holy folly is not foolishness, negative foolishness, nor is it... The way that Adam and Eve perceive things, it's on an even higher level. He does not entertain any rational speculations attempting to determine what should be his conduct. He acts by the intensity of the soul, higher than the rational faculties. Holy folly means that we're not using this list of the folly or the correction. The correction is a holy rationality, but that's not holy folly. Does that make sense? The correction here is the counter-argument to use. To launch. When your mind tells you this, you tell yourself that. You're still arguing. You're still rationalizing. You're still getting into it. Holy folly means nothing. No arguments, no conversations. I'm not, I'm not negotiating with terrorism. This is it. Forget about it. I'm doing it or I'm not doing it unequivocally. That's it. That's what holy folly is. I'm not even entertaining the thing, which means that when I catch myself... Falling into any of these follies, I have two options. Either I can counter it in my head and start a debate in, in my head, or I can say, doesn't matter, I'm not doing it. Why? I'm just not. Be stubborn about it. Let's continue. The soul possesses two, we're almost done. The soul possesses two categories of faculties. There are reveal powers of the soul, intellect and emotion, and, there are the, and there's the essence of the soul, transcending reason and intellect. It was this latter category which was manifest and dominant in Adam before the sin. When, now, uh, this translation is incorrect. <laughs> it's just incorrect. It's not latter category. It's the former category. It's the former, not the latter. <laughs> There's... T- huh? <laughs> you have it?
1: Whoever. <laughs> My, it's like a use and um, corrected. That's
0: they wrote former? Uh-huh. Interesting.
1: Yeah.
0: Huh. It was this former category which was manifest and dominant in Adam before the sin, when his attention was riveted on godliness. In other words, Adam and Eve before the sin, they understood with intellect and emotion what was right, what was wrong, they didn't have, but they didn't have their own experience in. This was due to the intellect powers of the godly soul that are manifest within him. There are souls that even after the sin, in other words, even post-sin, there are tzaddikim souls, that they have not utterly lost this state, and in whom the illumination of the godly soul is bright. They have knowledge and comprehension of godliness, and this is what occupies them constantly. They're constantly focused on God. They're not aware of what feels good and what would what, 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 what give them pleasure. It's not about that. It's about God. They are relatively insensitive to other concerns to the natural animalistic conception of physical good. Although they are not quite the same as Adam in his pristine state, who had no perceptivity of the natural whatsoever, nevertheless, they do not possess such a strong sensitivity for the natural. They are not enticed by the flaws of the Yetzirah, and they know and understand the truth as illustrated by the aforementioned calculations. In other words, there are people, and this ends the chapter, there are people who, are, who live their life in a pre-tree of knowledge state, where they perceive what God wants, they know the truth of what's right and wrong. And they're not so sensitive to self. They're not such, you know, sensual beings. I don't mean that in the, in the intimate way, but they're, not, they're just not so into their own feelings. It's not about them. It's about what's, what's right. It's about rule followers. Rule followers. So it's right, wrong, they're going to do it. I, what's wrong, would feel. There are people who would, you know, take a red light. Because they because they don't care, and there are people who would always stop, even if it's a dark, even if it's a completely abandoned location. You're in middle of Iowa in cornfields, and there's a stop. There's a, there's a red light. No one's around for miles. Literally, no one's around for miles. It's two a.m. and you're still going to stop and wait thirty seconds at a red light. There are people who will follow the rules, right? And I'm giving a physical example, but hey, conceptually, there are people who are spiritual rule followers. Why? Because this is what God wants. I'm going to do. They rationalize it. This is what God wants. God certainly knows better. And I, it might feel good for me, first of all. I'm not that, I'm not that excited about things in general. And whatever, it's just not my thing. I'm going to do what's right, not going to do what's wrong. That's it. If that's you, Mazeltov. Life is easier. Life is easier if that's you. But most of us are not in that category. Most of us are in the category of having, we feel the effects of the sinner tree of knowledge, i.e., our own. Uh, dipping our own toes in the forbidden fruit, so to speak, and we've tasted it, and it's felt good, and it's been good, and yes, it's burned us, but every time it comes around, it's like, well, maybe it won't burn me this time, but it feels good, even if it does burn me, and I'm living in the moment. We have all these different rationalizations. So the point is, there's two ways to, to deal with this. Way number one is, counteract folly with correction. Counteract one narrative with another narrative. But the second, and what he's suggesting, kind of underlying in the next chapter, which we'll do next week, he goes, all, you know, goes full on with that suggestion is sometimes the best argument, the best approach to a fool is not to engage in an argument. Sometimes it's to dismiss. You know, you're online, and suddenly you get a troll, a troll who's like typing messages, trying to agitate. There's two ways to respond. Two ways to deal with the troll. One is to respond to <laughs> so gesund, feed the troll. Or you can say, I'm out. <laughs> like, I'm not feeding the troll. I'm not arguing with the troll. Because I know that, yeah, I might win the argument, but like, first of all, it took a lot, of, a lot out of me. And it's just, it's just not worth it. It's just like, I know the truth, and I know the score, and that's it. I don't need to deal with this. And so he's suggesting that that's perhaps a, an approach, a different approach to the whole book. In other words, at the end of this book, 370 pages in, where he's given us rationalized arguments against all of the foolish arguments, he's suggesting at the end of the book, sometimes the best approach is not even to use these rational arguments, to not even argue, just to say, you know what? You might be right. It might feel good. It might not land me in trouble. I don't care. I'm still not going to do it. End of story. That's holy folly. That means holiness that is so irrational you don't even have to justify it with a reason. I'm not, just, I'm not telling you why I'm going to do this. Why I'm, But what? You think God really cares if you eat this or that? You're, somebody might tell you, a f- friend might tell you, you think God, or even in your own head you might say, you think God really cares what you eat? God doesn't have more important things? doesn't matter. I'm not going to argue with you. I'm not going to explain this to you. I'm not going to rationalize this to you. No is no, is no, is no. Or yes is yes, is yes, is yes. That's it. Be absolute. Be foolish in a holy way. That's the last, this is, this is the last piece of this book. I mean, we have next week also to, to finish up. But the last piece of this book is, don't get entrenched. Sometimes, sometimes you can. If you can handle this, if you can deal with the trolls, the inner troll, go for it. But if you feel yourself struggling with it and not really gaining ground, don't don't hesitate to pull out the nuclear option, which is to say, we're done. No explanations, I'm just doing it, or I'm just not doing it. I don't need to give you a reason why. Tell yourself that. Sometimes you don't need to argue. If you argue with a fool, you might end up foolish. So this is holy folly. And the way I explained it last week is when you have a bend in a paper, right? something's bent this way, you want to correct it, you can't just hold it straight. you have to bend it all the way the other way. then you have a really wrinkled paper. No, then then it might it might go straight, right? So when we find ourselves doing foolish things in the negative, let's go foolish the other way, irrational the other way, and then hopefully we'll get to the middle place, which is the, uh, the correct way of thinking. So in summary, Adam and Eve before the sin, they were thinking correctly. After thinking correctly along the lines of this is what God wants, what God doesn't want, it makes sense, I understand God's will, etc. After the sin, or the sin constituted an experience where they started to feel themselves. Uh-oh, all bets are off. Now it's not about what God wants, it's about what I want, what I like, how I feel. And we said the antidote to the post-tree state, there's two options, either to get to that pre-tree state, which is, understanding why this is not a good idea, or to not even get into the realm of of understanding, to transcend that, to just do what's right because it's right, and not do what's wrong because it's wrong. No arguments, no rationalizations, no no justifications, no excuses. Absolute. So, this week, our homework is, find one area in our lives. Find one area in our lives in which we've been spinning in self-debates. Or maybe even with someone else. Obviously, pick, pick, your, pick your spot. And find one, one area and be a little bit more absolute. Not in a mean way, not in an ugly way, but in a, in, a, in, a, in a strong way. To say, look, I know you can argue this way and I can argue that way. And we can go this and that and the other. But bottom line is, my soul is going to speak right now. This is what we're doing. This is what we're not doing. End of story. And the conversation. Let's find those moments, find one moment, and be absolute. All right, thank you for joining me today for Cabal and Coffee. Thank you, Dr. Maxi, of course, for sponsoring, and uh, questions or comments?
1: I already talked before about say stopping, let's say, those follies, kind or of like inner emotions, inner thoughts, and not necessarily you. Mm-hmm. It reminds me of, Nick Card says, I think, therefore I am, and I thought one of the Funnier critiques of that was: What do you mean by "I think"? That the notion of the thoughts that come into us are us versus like what is you? Like the notion of "I think"? Like I don't bring thoughts; the so thoughts just come, and that's the way right. it sounds like you're describing this mm-hmm. is oh, oh, allowing yourself to know that you are not your thoughts, but then at the same beautiful. time, I remember also beautiful. hearing
0: beautiful. Th- Wait, can, th- can th- I? Just, th- can I just? Uh, I want to just share yeah. that. Well, Matt is suggesting. You know, Descartes says, "I think, therefore, I am." But the 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 pushback against that is, hold on, are my thoughts really me? I think, therefore, I am. But who are my thoughts? Do my thoughts really define me, or are they somehow things that I'm thinking of? Are they somehow external things that I'm thinking? And and I think what what we see here is that according to Kabbalah, not all of our thoughts are who we are. We are a neshama. We are a soul, and our thoughts are almost secondary accumulations of knowledge and, and experience that might not be the true us and might not be so healthy. So it's not like everything that we think is for sure us. That's a great point, yeah.
1: Because if we are so bombarded by so many other, you know, everyone else on this planet, so we can't maintain...
0: It's right, it's maintain. really hard, but that doesn't, but the point is that it doesn't make it us. The moment we, we feel, the yes, the moment we make it us... Is that we, 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 we relinquish the keys to our own, like, we're like, I, well, I can't, because this is who I am. So I think the most important step, and maybe this is like the first step, is to recognize that you existed before the tree. And I think that's actually, now that I think about it, that's how he sets this up. You existed in a state of reality before the tree. Every one of us has a pre tree reality that's not defined by that taste experience, that knowledge. That's not. That's an aftermarket. That's an add-on. And if that's added on, we can, we can also negate it at, on some level. Right? We can't always forget it, but we can somehow negate it. You had one more thing about determinism?
1: Um, yeah, some philosophers I listen to, they'll take that fact and say that, well, because of that, there is necessarily no you. And it kind of, mm-hmm. I think that for them, that leads to determinism, that right. well, we're all just... these. For lack of a better words, floating meat bags who can't really control what we're doing—it's
0: just coming to us, right? right. Whereas in, in like this state, are, yeah. right? So according to this, we are a godly soul that has the sense of this, this, inner sense of right and wrong because it's aligned with the divine sense of right and wrong. And then the other stuff is the aftermarket stuff, and that's what we can—that's what we're navigating and trying to manage and shed and deflect and kung fu. It also reminds me of the story with Descartes. Back in the day, he was French, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Descartes walked into a bar once, into a pub. <laughs> a, and cafe. a cafe. Café. No, but with, <laughs> with And uh, the bartender asked Descartes, can I pour you, uh, what would they drink? What's, what's a strong drink back then? Can I pour you some cognac? cognac? Yeah. And he said, I think not. Poof. <laughs> 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 oh, <come here>. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry, Dr. Maxi. <laughs> Poof, and he's gone, right? Because he said, "I think not." You're with me. Doesn't exist.
1: Yeah.
0: All right, Susan. Uh,
1: this is just a practical question: Are is Kabbalah and coffee going to continue at in town? Because um, I know that great question. <laughs> Stay tuned
0: next week. <laughs> Stay tuned next week for more excitement and announcements. It's,
1: it's okay. the, the, the last chapter is next. Week. That's kind of
0: divine. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> we're, uh, we're, you know yeah, yeah. Yaakov writes, I saw that coming, said Karma. Right. Um, yeah, so stay tuned next week. We'll, uh, we'll, we'll explore and discuss plans. All right. See you next week. We're here. Same bad time, same bad channel. Um, have a wonderful week. Don't forget this week we have daily paraphrasha every day at noon. We have Wednesday night Torah studies, and of course, other opportunities to connect. As well in between. Good. Shavu Tov. have a wonderful week. Mariana, great to see you. Joy and Susan and David and Adam and Toba and Yaakov, have a wonderful week. We'll see you guys sending lots Thanks of love. Pleasure. Take care. We'll be laughing
1: at the Descartes show for a while. I don't know
0: why I find that so incredibly funny. <laughs> I don't think I recorded this class on my recorder. Which is fine. I have it. I have it on Zoom. I have a backup that I can pull the audio. But I'm looking at my. I'm like, stopping my recording. It. No, it's just on the on the home screen of my recording. All right. That happens on occasion. When you copy this, did it did it um, staple at the same time? How yes. You it like that? Yeah, yeah, yeah. This I'm has an inline you. stapler. Yeah, yeah. Oh yeah. Oh, yeah. yeah. Not, only, not, not only that. Not only that. Okay. I have a setting. I have a setting called Cabal and Coffee Print, where it automatically prints a certain quantity, um, doubles two on each page double-sided, <laughs> and puts the staple in the right, in the, in the correct <laughs> corner, you- landscape-wise. I have a preset. I have no idea
2: television- yeah, yeah, yeah,
0: yeah, yeah, yeah. Legit, legit. You
1: can't even punch.
0: Yeah, I don't know yeah. if this one has the punch, but here, look, I mean, look, if I uh, Command P, see it's KNC Print, literally a preset. I have J-Line Notes. Kansi print, Torah studies print, I have different ones. Kansi is like two. Torah studies is is one, mm-hmm. back to back. Kansi is two two up, Hebrew English. K and
1: K, Kabbalah, you know. Like Kabbalah a- and okay.
0: coffee yeah. with a K. K. Cafe, right, you can, oh, whatever. right, Just, Just, yeah. What
1: We're gonna stress the, the hard K sound. Right, yeah, says the trip is gonna be on September
0: 14th. Nice. Wednesday. Very cool.
1: Yeah. The one day to doing it? It's going to be September fourteenth. Is
0: it local or is it all the kibas? It might. It might be a few kibas.
1: Just telling you that Delta you has, has round trip flight at the moment for one hundred and seventy dollar.
0: To New York, that's great. That you can, that's a great price. Our yeah. prices coming down again? Because they have been like sky high. I mm-hmm. booked Mendel now round trip to Chicago. Also, very cheap. You
1: know, after July, August, it should, but any 40 days is known by
0: the airline, you know. Jewish holidays also? Yeah, like I've seen like Passover, they. Rosh Hashanah for Chicago,
1: it's already, yeah.
0: So they know. The algorithm knows all. (laughs) Great to see you. Gotta come back. I will.
1: I enjoyed it. Awesome. I can you do a follow-up from Wednesdays for a Sure, yeah, So, sure. Um, we were talking, oh yes, so, a moment of conception, a soul. Yeah. So, how does it work if someone Convert.
0: Thank you for listening. I hope you enjoyed today's episode. As always, you can find us online at IntownJewishAcademy.org. And on YouTube at InTown Jewish Academy. New episodes of the podcast come out a few times a week. If you don't want to miss a single episode, then hit the subscribe button. If you enjoyed today's episode, please take a moment to leave a rating or review. It means a lot to me and it helps other people find the podcast. Thanks so much for listening, and I hope you have a wonderful day.